ACASTCAST. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Love Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the Social Psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It is with great pleasure that I have special guest Nicholas Pearson this evening. Nicholas is a renowned author and expert instructor for crystal healing and Reiki energy healing. Pearson has been immersed in all aspects of the mineral kingdom for more than 20 years. He developed a profound love for rocks and minerals in early childhood, and his passion grew to include the spiritual beliefs about stones from cultures around the world. He began key crystal workshops in high school, later studying mineral science at Stetson Gillespie Museum. He's a certified teacher of Reiki Rojo and a practitioner, and he teaches crystal healing and Reiki classes throughout the United States. As a renowned author, he has to date published several books, including The Seven Archetypal Stones, Crystals for Karmic Healing, Crystal Healing for the Heart, and The Foundations of Reiki and Rojo, a manual of Shodon, and Okudin. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me on, Jason. I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight. Absolutely. And uh, I, I just want our audience to know how I, how I even found out about you. I was Googling crystal healing workshops and came across your information on you that way. And I'm very glad that I did because you have a, you have a lot of information out there already in your, in your career. One of the things I want to ask you with reference to this particular path that you've been on with teaching and, and just diving into the crystal healing world, as we call you, what caused you to actually pursue this as one of your passions in life? You know, this goes back to early childhood. Um, I can't remember a time when I didn't love rocks as a small child. I used to pick up stones everywhere I went, whether it was by the ocean or out of my grandparents' neighbor's gravel driveway. 
um, trips to the mountains, parking lots, anywhere you could find a rock, I was there. Um, and my grandfather surely took notice of this. I, I doubt he was the only one. Um, and when I was eight, he gave me my first quartz crystal. Um, I still have this in my possession today. It is one of my most treasured mineral specimens. Um, it's from Arkansas. I didn't know that then, but I do now. Um, and suddenly, you know, stone wasn't just this inert part of the scenery, but it was transparent, it was crystalline, it had a regular structure, and it did amazing things with light. So that's really where my love kind of took off. I will say that, you know, gratefully my, my dad and I spent our weekends at libraries. When, when many families go to church, we, we went to our own church of learning, which was a library. And um, he had a science background, and he loved encouraging you to learn whatever it might be. So it might be folklore and fairy tales and mythology one week, and the next it might be things like uh, marine biology or mineral science or, you know, whatever I could get my hands on. And, you know, over the years, I started to see correlations between these two seemingly opposing camps. You might find, um, you know, several different cultures had different ways of rationalizing some sort of inexplicable natural phenomenon. And then, you know, sometime later, I'd learn about how that thing actually happened, whether it was the formation of rocks and minerals or how weather took place, you know, whatever it might be. And I really loved looking at the correlations between spirituality, history, culture, and science itself. And that's kind of what put me on the path to um, doing the deeper work with Crystal. That's interesting. When you mentioned um, your spiritual path, did a lot of that incorporate, did you incorporate meditation into that at an early age? You know, I really did. When I was in middle school, um, I, I remember any, anything I could get my hands on that had sort of a spiritual bent, um, I, I would read, I would just devour. And, you know, at that age, a lot of it's either written very simply or it's fictionalized. And so, you know, I'd, I'd read about characters who meditated or, you know, engaged in some sort of weird occult practice. And I try to recreate that. And, um, you know, the, the first time I was ever really successful at meditating, I remember going through my dad's old music collection. Um, and he had a ton of classical and new age music um, that he used for stress relief in a, a previous career that he had that was high pressure. And so I, I like raided my dad's collection to, to put on Enya and sit there with a crystal sphere and just still my mind and learn how to meditate. And I might have been in seventh grade, maybe eighth grade at the time. And that's, that's really when my meditation practice started. And while I haven't always been as consistent, um, it is something that I keep up even today. Well, I feel like that varies from person to person. I know my own meditation practices, um, they vary based on my schedule and with what's going on in my life. So I can understand that. I know looking at your background, you've studied this, and I, I think you've mentioned this before we got on the show. Can you tell, tell our audience a little about your personal library uh, collection of this topic with yeah. crystal healing and gemstones? I would love to have you share that with our audience. So I have an admission to make. I have a book problem. I love books. <laughs> I love rocks. Therefore, books about rocks are the best there ever were. Um, so my, my reference library just on crystals alone is just shy of about 350 volumes. Uh, you know, one shelf out of maybe eight is purely scientific or historical or culturally based. All of the others have a more um, spiritual slant to them. Um, whether they're big giant reference books of crystal properties or explorations of 
um, crystal skulls or lithium minerals or who knows what. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of books in, in the shelves, and that's, that was kind of how I got my early instruction. Um, my beginning of my spiritual practice with crystals came a lot from sitting down and quietening my mind and having that spiritual experience and just being in the space of those stones and seeing that had to share with me. I wouldn't say they necessarily talk to me in words, but you get impressions and get glimpses into their energy. And that would sort of shape the way I would work them into healing or meditation or, or other forms of practice. And then as I found books on crystals, I started incorporating those too. Um, and, you know, I, I maybe started with three or four and really well, I read them over and over again and got to know what those, those people had to say. And, you know, I, learn how to do the meditation, I would practice the meditation, I'd have an experience, I'd compare notes with what the author said, and then I'd do it all over again. So um, I really kind of forged my own path. I, I found what worked for me that other people did. I found what didn't work for me that other people did, and I started kind of blazing my own path as time went on. That's so interesting. I know you've mentioned different cultures. Have you found from your personal study of this topic, what cultures uh, do you find from your personal studies that actually valued crystals more than others? Like what, if I was to say, if I was to ask you to name like three cultures that would come off the top of your head that you say value crystals in a spiritual sense more than others, what would those three cultures be? Well, you know, barring the sort of modern metaphysical movement, which I think takes the cake, if we look at um, more historic practices, um, you know, one that is still alive and well and evolving as time goes on today, uh, would be like the Ayurvedic tradition of the working with gemstones that we find in India. Um, okay. China has a living history related to stones and gemstones, particularly jade, but many other precious stones as well. Um, and that's something that pervades all of the different uh, spiritual paths and traditions and religions of China. So it's not, not owned by any one particular path. Um, if we're looking at ancient cultures, Egypt would be a really great example. But th the truth is that this is, pan-cultural. This is everybody. This is not something that a select few have been into before we had the divides of language and culture and geography that we know today. Uh, humankind has been connecting with minerals. The, the earliest carved gemstones that we can find are tens of thousands of years old. And while they're not beautiful things like diamond and sapphire, they're, they're more often things like white quartz or amber or jet or fossil bone. Um, they're still of geologic origin, they're still stone in some way or another. And so our relationship with the mineral kingdom is primordial. It is something that precedes what we think humanity looks like. That makes sense. I want to ask you, in reference to the energy healing that you've been involved in, what led you on that path to pursue that? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, like very specifically with the healing part, I think my... My first foray really kind of started with um, my love for all things crystal related because I just really liked rocks. The, the easiest outlet, the, the most common books you could find that related to crystals and spirituality was crystal healing. So I kind of started there. 
Um, but in my adolescence and in my early young adulthood, um, I really struggled with an anxiety and panic disorder. Um, it was it was really rough for a few years there. Um, I tried a whole lot of different approaches. I I went to you know, standard allopathic medicine first and foremost. I was seeing a therapist. I was taking medicine. I was doing all the things that I should do, and it wasn't getting any better. It's like we could dial down the intensity of it, but it never took the feeling away altogether. And, um, you know, one of my one of my spiritual friends and mentors, um, she was the owner of one of the venues where I, I first began teaching, um, invited me to sign up for one of her Reiki classes. And Reiki became this wonderful gift um, although I'd been using gemstones and flower essences and, and other tools to sort of manage the symptoms of my anxiety, Reiki was something that treated the cause in a way that I, I was un- unprepared for. I was amazed at how quickly and readily I could relax and how long I could carry that relaxation with me throughout the day. So it was, it was really my, my personal need for it that kind of began my journey into Reiki specifically. That's great. I know, um, I believe that they correlate as well. I believe crystals, energy healing, or any type of modality such as Reiki or pranic healing, I feel like they're very interconnected. In fact, when I do readings myself as an intuitive medium, I always have some crystals around me or, you know, on me, with me. Um, I think that they definitely help tremendously when you're trying to connect mind, body, and spirit. Um, from my own personal experiences. I wanted to get into your actual books. The seven archetypal stones that you wrote. Um, can you tell our audience what motivated you to uh, publish this first book that you have here? So I, think, I think I would start by calling this my love song to the mineral kingdom. Uh, I really wrote this book for me. I didn't, I didn't write it for you guys. Unfortunately, okay. um, it started out as as this exercise, nothing more than something to take my mind off of the present moment. Um, I was driving to work one day, and at this point, I had you know been climbing the corporate ladder and was managing a very successful retail store, and on my way into the corporate office. And um, you know, this this particular day before work, I'd stuck a piece of obsidian in my pocket. I always kind of like to tune in, even today, before I head out into the world, I choose which stones are going to be my allies for that day. Um, or rather, I, I listen to them as they choose me. And obsidian was the, the one stone that like stood up and said, okay, I'm here for you. And so my, my daily habit was to reflect on the stone in my pocket as I drove to work. And I didn't even make it out of the driveway before I kind of came on this realization that wherever you go in the world, obsidian is used for exactly the same purposes, at least in the material plane. Um, we make sharp things and shiny things from it. Um, things like um, arrowheads and spear points, knife blades, ritual blades, um, and then things like polished mirrors and spheres and other things that are reflective. And these are kind of leveraged against its physical properties if we look at how obsidian forms and the kind of composition and structure it has that tells us why it, it's so good at making sharp edges and reflective surfaces. But, you know, ancient cultures didn't understand the science of it, and yet they were still able to sort of tap into that archetypal level at which the essence, the, the very spiritual soul of obsidian operates. And if we look at those physical 
artifacts, they point us towards what obsidian has to offer for us, spiritually speaking. And I, you know, put the car in park right there. I pulled out my phone. I typed myself a note, and I kind of forgot about it for a little while. And when I came back to it, I decided I was going to take those few ideas and flesh it out and turn it into an outline just for fun. And uh, it was a really good stress relief project to kind of get my mind off of work. And then maybe another week went by and I sat down and said, well, you know, hypothetically, if I were going to do something more with this project, what are some other stones that I might want to talk about that kind of work in similar ways, that work on this really big overarching scheme that every culture has recognized? And I kind of made a list and I pared it down and I rearranged it and I added to it and I, I kept working on it. But one day I sat down in front of the computer and started writing and 10 days later I had a whole chapter. And I'd been, not really actively, but here and there I'd been writing with the goal of writing a book on crystals maybe 10 years. And I had no more than a, a couple pages here or there, never as much as a whole chapter. So um, this was a really big and profound moment for me. So I decided I was going to pursue it. And thankfully I found a publisher who, who was interested in the project even before it was finished. Um, and here we are. The, the rest is history. That's so interesting. I, um, the seven stones that you did pick to discuss, the jade, and obsidian, lapis lazuli, emerald, this diamond, what made you arrive at those specific stones for your book? You know, very easily this could have been the 12 archetypal stones or the 792 archetypal stones. Um, <laughs> but seven is a really great number, spiritually speaking. And then... Um, you know, at the end of the day, it had to be an accessible amount to work with, something that um, wasn't going to be terrifying or make the book too too expensive to print or buy. So you know, seven was a good number, kind of what I, I was aiming towards, but I didn't know what the final count was going to be. And eventually, these, these stones are really the ones that said, pick me, pick me, I'm here for this. Uh, there were certain ones that were really easy. Um, you know, the, no sooner did I write down my my notes about obsidian, then I started thinking about things like quartz and diamond and lapis lazuli, but some of the others are a little bit harder to flesh out. Um, you know, I wasn't aiming for a, a chakra correspondence. These are not seven stones related to the seven energy centers of the body. They're not correlated to the seven um, classical planets of, of astrology in the ancient world. Um, they're not connected to the seven days of the week. They're just the seven stones that wanted to be part of this project. So apart from being accessible, they also had to be um, workable in this sort of universal format. Wherever you went in the world, you had to find similar symbolism that was built up around them. And um, you know, for some stones, like obsidian or diamond or quartz even, those are really easy to see. But for others, like jade, jade being so many things to so many cultures, that was the most challenging chapter of this book to write. And it took it took months compared to the ten days it took me to write Obsidian. <laughs> That's interesting. I'll say it takes a lot of discipline to be able to publish and write your own book like this. I know um, it had it had a, what was the what was one of the greatest challenges you found with this particular project that you had to overcome in order to finish this particular book. You know, if I can be really vulnerable, I think it, it really boils down to that, that feeling of worth. Like, was I really good enough to do this? Who was I to be this authority? Because, you know, most of what I do is self-taught. I have networked with a lot of really wonderful and fantastic crystal teachers whose works have shaped my life and my practice, mostly indirectly by, by reading 
by listening to them and by, you know, kind of assimilating that. But, um, you know, I didn't have a formal teacher. So, you know, what was my pedigree to make me worth this? And then, you know, the other side of it is even from the mineral science perspective, I'm completely self-taught there. So how was, how was I going to be the authority? Um, honestly, uh, you know, I've got a background in sales. When I had my moment to sort of give my pitch, um, you know, work it in kind of coyly, uh, I, I really had the, this immediate, like, response, like, you should send us this. And I'm like, oh, I have maybe one and a half chapters, and that half a chapter isn't worth sharing. Because that's okay. We sign projects all the time that ha don't have, um, you know, a full manuscript. We just give you a deadline. So uh, we had to rearrange that deadline. It's not the first time. It, wasn't, yeah, it won't be the last time I've had to do that either. But, um, you know, having that impetus, having someone else believe in my work really gave me the drive to finish it. I think that's probably one of the best things to say to our audience is when you're dealing with challenges, being able to push ahead and finish this. And this is what I think from what you shared, that that's one of the things that resonates with me is sometimes you have challenges, even when you're getting this published, you'll work up against certain things like having to move deadline or having to spend a little extra time on a certain part of your book. I think overcoming that is what's key in terms of at least what resonates with from so far with our discussion on this particular project. We do have a caller, and I'd like to welcome to the show. Hold on one second, okay? Sure. Jason Zook, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, yes, may I ask who's name, please? Pardon me? Yes, hi. May I ask your name, please? This is Jason Zook. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Is this that? Yes, it is. I can barely hear you. You're cutting out. Oh, my apologies. Uh, somewhat. <laughs> okay, great. We have you on, on live right now. I know. You've been patient, and I wanted to ask if you have any questions for Nicholas or myself. Um, I have a question for Nicholas, and it is in regards to the Jim Jade. And in his book, um, Seven Archetypal Stones, that is one of the featured minerals, and it seems to contribute so much to our evolution. How do you fine-tune that and like boil it down to just one word or one thought or one gift that Jade brings to us? You know, this was my challenge in writing Jade. Um, the, the underlying theme, the thing that kind of connects all of its many archetypes in, in many different cultures is peace. Jade is often seen as sort of this funerary offering, whether it is a grave good that's kind of gifted with with the deceased to make their journey or as uh, a funeral mask or other ornaments on the actual body of the deceased. It represents this idea of death and that, that death really is death of the ego. When we embrace nothing but peace, all of our fears pass away. All of our worries and anxieties pass away. Oh. All of our troubles are gone. And, um, you know, it's that peace that allows us to transcend the sort of death aspect of what Jade offers and takes us into that idea of rebirth. Jade is a wonderful gateway. It helps us kind of access the higher realm. Oh, that's beautiful. That that sort of says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Well, if if a person were to want to have just one stone as a beginner that would help you connect with the mineral kingdom and the consciousness of the mineral kingdom, 
would you suggest jade or would you suggest a different stone? You know, I think that stone that catalyzes our reaction, our, our relationship with the mineral kingdom is different for each of us. So I think we should all just kind of still our minds and, and find the stone that's reaching out to us. Maybe it'll be jade, maybe it'll be quartz, maybe it'll be something we've never heard of like plumbogamite or echogite. Um, but whatever it is, it's going to be a blessing for you. Thank you so much. I love your answer. Thank you. And I love your book. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for calling into the show. Thanks. You're welcome. That was a great question about Jade. I want to I ask you a little bit about clearing stones and sure. the different methodologies that we can employ to do so. And perhaps people in our audience that are listeners don't know anything about what I'm asking in terms of the topic area. But first, to explain what I mean when I say clearing a stone. And then secondly, I wanted to ask you what would be methodology you use or you recommend uh, for clearing stones that you found over time? So when it comes to cleansing or clearing, what we're really talking about is kind of wiping the, the memory clean on our stones. Um, crystalline structures are natural recorders of, of energy, of information. And, you know, if we're wearing our beloved crystals as we go about our day, it's going to kind of record the experiences that we have. Sometimes those are really good things. Sometimes they're not. So every time you put that same crystal on, it's kind of rejecting those impressions it's picked up all along the way. And especially if you're working with clients in a hands-on healing practice with crystals, then you, you really don't want to take someone else's information, the patterns that they've released, the, the ick that they've carried around. That's our technical term for it, by the way, ick. Um, <laughs> and uh, we don't want to give that to the next person on our treatment table. So cleansing is a way of, of starting from a blank slate. Um, it doesn't mean it erases every function the crystal has. It just takes out that, that additional information that it has stored. So some methods are really great for all of our crystals. Some methods are not so great for certain ones. Um, they basically fall into two camps. We have those that work because we can explain the physics behind it. Um, and then we have those that work simply because we believe in them. And that's a really powerful tool in and of itself because our consciousness shapes reality. Our consciousness works with physics. Um, especially when they kind of come from that quantum approach. Um, they, they otherwise don't have a model behind them. So if we look at something like sunlight or moonlight or um, even the smoke of sage, these are, these are things that work because we believe in them. That doesn't mean that they don't work. It just means keep up the intention. Your mind is the primary driver. Everything else is just a symbol of what's going on. Um, and then we have other things like certain forms of working with water, or with the breath, or with sound that, that kind of utilize the, the principles of physics to, to somehow interact with the crystal lattice in a way that it's almost like wringing out a sponge. It, it purges it of the information it's been carrying. So my favorite method for cleansing is using the breath. It's based on the techniques of Dr. Marcel Vogel, who's a former research scientist for IBM, um, and went on to become the kind of grandfather of the modern crystal healing movement. Uh, and I describe that process in a couple of my books, The Seven Archetypal Stones and, and Crystals for Karmic Healing. Um, but there are lots of other wonderful ways. You just want to be mindful that it help, it's helpful to know a little bit of mineral science here. Um, you know, I'm a big science nerd. I try to share as much information about crystals as possible because we can sometimes do a lot of harm, even though we mean to do a lot of good. Let's say you take something beautiful and fragile, like uh, a, a delicate 
celestite formation or a beautiful polished piece of selenite and you place that in a bed of salt or maybe immerse it in water, you may actually do a lot of damage to it. You could also have a beautifully saturated piece of fluorite that's just a gorgeous shade of blue or purple or green and you put it in direct sunlight and it begins to fade over time. So a lot of our transparent colored gemstones don't do well in full sun. Um, others are damaged by water, some by salt. So we have to know what's going on structurally, chemically, physically with our stones in order to use those kinds of methods. And, you know, my, my method of using the breath is wonderful because um, if something is too delicate to breathe on, chances are you're not, you're not going to be using it in your healing practice anyway. And unlike something that requires the full moon or fresh water or salt or a singing bowl, Everywhere you go, you have your cleansing tool with you if you use the breath. And if you don't have your breath, you have a bigger problem than a dirty crystal. <laughs> so when you use your breath, you literally, can you describe that process a little more in depth? I haven't heard about that before, so that's interesting. Here. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we have to have a focus intention. So we really need to go into a light meditative state, focus on some sort of symbol that represents cleansing and clearing to you. So it might be just those words if you're a very verbal kind of person, but you can also visualize something like white light or a cool running stream. And there's a specific way of breathing. Um, I kind of need to use a, a good deep three-part yogic breath. Um, and it's a short and sharp pulse of the breath through the nose. And if we do that in the right way, you actually generate a tiny ionic charge with the breath. And that's what's responsible for the physics part of it. Having that meditative focus also puts our faith or our mind where it's going. So this method unites the two. And the full description of them can be found in my first two books. That's excellent. Tell me a little about programming a crystal. I, uh, the power of intention, I, I understand that with the manifestation, but our audience may not. And as a, since we're talking sure. about clearing a crystal, your views on programming a crystal with the power of intention. You know, um, programming or sometimes called charging is a polarizing topic in the world of crystal healing. You know, there are a lot of people who um, approach working with crystals the same way they would uh, were using a computer. So programming is kind of like installing the app on your phone. It's what allows you to give it a specific set of instructions. Um, some people find that this kind of bypasses the idea that crystals have their own consciousness. Um, it kind of puts us in this position of power and then um, might seem kind of disrespectful to these, these entities, these essences that are much older than our, our human consciousness. So, um, you know, there are people on each side of the fence. I think of programming more as like an invitation. I'm not commanding a crystal to say, hey, I want you to fix this problem in my life or bring me this wonderful thing. Um, but it's, it's kind of like saying, hey, I know you do so many wonderful things. This is the one specific type of wonderful thing I'd like to do with you right now. And programming works as much for my benefit as it does for the stones. Not only am I extending that invitation to the stone, but I'm programming in my own mind what it is that I really like to manifest whether that's more money or a faster car or a new pair of shoes, um, whatever it is, uh, I'm, I'm planting this idea that I am capable of achieving it and that I'm worthy of achieving it. And then let's say you forget to take the crystal with you as you go about your life. You've already planted that idea in your mind. You're going to see all sorts of benefits. I want to get into your second book, Crystals for Karmic Healing. Sure. Can you tell us a little about what motivated you to uh, publish the second book? So this book was completely unexpected. I was um, trying to come up with some new curriculum for my workshops. I, I teach very regularly. 
Um, at the time, I wasn't teaching as regularly as I am now because I still had my big boy job, as we call it, um, when I started writing. But um, I left that. I pursued um, another outlet for a little while while I was in that process of writing the first book. And then I took the dive into this world completely. So I wanted to make sure I had fresh material when I made that transition. And one of the themes that kept coming up over and over again was karma and what we can do about that and why it's so, so impactful on our everyday life. So um, the idea of this was born first as a workshop, and I was having kind of an insomniac moment, and I was really having difficulty sleeping one night, and I figured the answer is work. So I sit down and work. I'm going to fall asleep immediately. So I'm going to work on my outline for this class. About three and a half, four hours later, I had a complete outline for the class. I still hadn't fallen asleep. Um, but it, it showed me that there was so much material there, so much room for expansion that it wasn't going to fit in a class anyway. So I spent the next, something like maybe just under four weeks, translating that middle-of-the-night crazy insomniac outline into a <laughs> completed manuscript. How long did it take you to finish this second book? About 27 days. Wow. So that, In- was, you know, that was the initial draft. There's a long process that goes into translating that into a whole book, but... Um, it's about 27 days to make that whole, that whole manuscript come through. When you, when you are in the zone and you write your draft or your manuscript, as you called it, do you feel like you're channeling something larger than yourself? Or do you feel like, because I've had guests come on the show and they tell me that when they've written their books, they feel like they're in, they call it the zone or they feel like they actually, I mean, they've actually attributed it to channeling some other knowledge that comes into them and they, it helps them to really clarify things. Have you found that at all with your publications or has this been strictly something that you derive from something within that's more earthly in origin? You know, I kind of have this contentious relationship with this idea because um, I, I have this inner academic. You can take me out of academia, but you can't take, take the academia out of me. And the idea of like handing over my inspiration to a source outside of myself really kind of hurts that inner academic. But, you know, the truth is that even when I'm sitting down and doing the research and, and being very studious about it, that, that initial spark of inspiration had to come from somewhere. And there are certainly connections that have been made in the moment of writing that I can't take credit for. So um, I think there's a healthy mixture of, of ways that I sort of draw upon these different resources to write because I sit down and review a manuscript after it's been totally polished or I... I you know, my ritual is always to sit down the day I get my new book and, and read it start to finish. And I stop and go, I don't remember this. How did this get huh. here? Um, and that's, <laughs> that's clearly because it's, it's not all coming from me. And uh, as much as my ego would love to take credit for it, um, it doesn't get to. I think that's fascinating when people tell me it like yourself. I, I think it's great because I feel like what you're creating is just so much bigger than any of us could even imagine because you're helping to inspire mm-hmm. others and learning about this extremely important topic. I wanted to ask you, how did you find you can use crystals and gemstones to resolve negative karma in your life? Well, you know, over the years, you kind of take notice of stones that have different properties, whether it's because you read about it in a book or experienced it firsthand. And, um, you know, there are a handful of gemstones that I had kind of become really intimately connected to because of their karmic implications, um, one of which is uh, a form of 
matrix opal, sometimes called opalite, not to be confused with the pretty glass called opalite. And its primary mission is to resolve our karma. Um, and when we work with it, it kind of works through those like strata of karmic crud that we accumulate over the eons um, to, to find the areas that are most willing to be released. And it goes very gently through our aura and sifts through and finds these things. And, you know, we might find other stones such as Ethiopian opal, which kind of burns off old karma. It doesn't even give us the option to sort it. It's just, nope, it's gone. It's gone. Um, and I, I kind of flagged a few of these. But when you stop and think about how much free will we get, you know, all, all karma is is a record of the law of cause and effect. Every cause, there is an effect. They're not always opposite and equal. You know, you can drop a little pebble and it can create a huge avalanche. But ultimately there is always an effect for every cause. The, the only free will decision anything in the mineral kingdom makes is to incarnate, to become physical. We, on the other hand, have a whole lot of free will decisions, and that creates a whole lot of karma. You're never going to find a piece of rose quartz that wakes up when the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning and says, oh, crap, I, I'm really sick of this gig. I'm going to start being calcite from now on. I'm going to put in my two weeks notice and, <laughs> and no more rose quartz. Um, we, on the other hand, we have the power to make that decision, for good or for bad. Sometimes those are really wonderful choices, um, and sometimes they come with a lot of lessons. Um, and karma is nothing more than the record of how well we have learned those lessons. You can think of it as kind of being like um, your credit score or your progress report. Um, you know, a, a low credit score is not inherently bad or evil. It doesn't mean that you are a less successful, a less fully realized human being. It just means that there's less borrowing power that you've got. And that's kind of what your karmic score is like. If, if we could quantify it, all that represents is, is how many lessons you have already mastered and how many more you have to master on the journey of your soul's progression from start to finish. So crystals, yeah. not carrying much of their own karma, are wonderful catalysts for transforming the karma we carry around because everything that they become involved in after that moment of creation is an act of service. And service is the ultimate generator of positive karma. I like that, the selflessness of it. Have you ever um, incorporated, I know your, your book here talks about incorporating advanced crystal exercises for past life regression. Have you done that yourself? And what have you found the experience to be like utilizing crystals with past life regression techniques? I mean, it, it definitely wouldn't be in the book if I didn't do it. So, sure. um, you know, um, crystals being catalysts, Really, it boils down to what a catalyst is, is something that requires the amount of energy or effort required to achieve a specific outcome. So if we're doing that kind of regression work, if we want to experience what might have created this karmic ripple that we're, we're currently experiencing today, um, having something that makes that process easier is really helpful to us. So certain stones, um, jade or lapis lazuli or demordiorite or flint, um, are really good at kind of helping us sift through that karmic debris to find what our past life scenarios were so we can, we can better understand how we got to where we are today. So, um, you know, those, that book in particular, a lot of the experiential stuff either came from direct experiences I had or was divine inspiration, try this way out, go do this thing and see what happens. And that's how it was born. So there, there was a little bit of trial and error in there. Sometimes you think you see the whole picture when you're in that intuitive space, but it needs some fine-tuning. Um, and that's really where the, the fifth chapter of karmic healing came from. 
I want to ask you, I gravitated when I first got into this stuff to crystal skulls. And I wanted to see what your opinion is in terms of the fact that uh, cultures have used crystal skulls for, I believe, thousands of years. And I wanted to get what your, your insight is about that particular topic. I happen to have a very special affinity for crystal skulls myself. Um, I have four very old ones that are in my, my family of skulls, um, one of which is a, a small mascot and greenstone that's on loan to a museum right now. And the other three are, are larger carvings from different cultures. Um, I have a, a big collection of modern skulls, too. So they, they're a big part of my everyday practice. Um, I love to work with the skulls. A lot of what we think we know about them, a lot of, of what is repeated in the sort of metaphysical realm is uh, hyperbole and hearsay. There are a lot of myths and a whole lot of misinformation about what skulls are and what they do and how they were formed and why they're here. Um, you know, there was no master set of 13, at least not ever carved by one culture here in the physical realm. Um, they, the, some of the more famous purportedly ancient ones can all be traced to one very dubious antiquities dealer who likely had them all faked in Germany. Um, there are evidences of, of very old artifacts that are skull-shaped, not all of them quartz crystal. Some of them are, you know, basalt and granite and, you know, white quartz rock and jade. But yet we still have this very ancient and primal urge to carve our own likeness into stone. And I think part of this derives from the idea that, um, you know, the human kingdom and the mineral kingdom are so intimately connected. Our first tools, our first pigments, our first homes were all based on stone. And even today, there's no part of your life that isn't touched or shaped by the mineral kingdom, from the gypsum or the tonite crystals in the drywall of your home, to the copper ores that are refined, into the wires that provide you electricity, to the silica, the sand, the feldspar that we melt down into the glass that forms your windshields and your windows. Um, you know, we are deeply, deeply connected to all things mineral. And so the idea of taking that sort of universal symbol of humankind and carving that into something that is far more eternal than our physical body is going to be, because we're going to wither and decay, but to carve it into quartz allows it to be eternal, allows it to become luminous, and it reminds us there's a spark of the soul that is eternal. There's a piece of us that won't break down when our bodies do, and it will last even longer than that quartz carving. I love that. I want to get into your third book, um, Crystal Healing for the Heart. What motivated you to write this book? Because I noticed it talks about gemstone therapy for physical, emotional, and spiritual being, and I wanted to ask you, what was the primary motivating factor for you to write this book? Um, to be maybe a little too honest, um, writing my second book was so easy. It was such a, a simple process, start to finish, less than a month. Um, I decided to take my favorite workshop to teach and translate that to a book a couple weeks longer. Um, but uh, the curriculum that became Crystal Healing for the Heart um, is material that I've been working on since maybe 2008, 2009, in its earliest stages. It reflects a lot of my own practice with stones. So the exercises that are in there are things that I use in my everyday world, things that I have been using for um, you know, the better part of a decade now, and I've been teaching to students for, for that long also. So um, over the years, I've gotten to know a lot more crystals that fit into those different themes that the book is organized into, and so I can never sit down and teach this class from start to finish and cover all the rocks. So by writing the book, it gave me the opportunity to put all of them in there, as well as a few others um, that hadn't quite ever made it into the live classes. So now there's a, a resource that people can go to and actually 
sit down and get to know all of the available stones um, that I would ultimately like them to work with in that that original two-hour time slot. Oh. With reference to, I, I know you talk about different versions of hearts of the heart in your in your book. I want to see if you could explain that to our audience because I think that's something that's interesting: the physical heart, the symbolic heart. Um, I want to see if you could explain that a little further for us. Yeah. So you know, our our heart is full of this multi-layered symbolism. So if we start at the most basic level, what is the physical organ of our heart? It is a four-chambered, hollow, muscular organ that's responsible for driving our circulatory system. And, um, you know, that fourfold symbolism of it we can find in many cultures. Um, we see it connected to the four classical elements, to the four humors, to the four seasons even. Um, we see that two of them take blood away from the heart and two of them receive blood from the body. Um, so there's this idea of give and take. Um, the heart also has to be able to provide nutrients and oxygen to itself and remove waste from itself first and foremost before it can take care of the rest of the body. You know, imagine if the heart pumped blood to everywhere except itself, it would <laughs> stop doing that pretty soon. Um, and we see in there the kind of message of putting on your own oxygen mask before helping someone else. Um, we also learn that things have to be reciprocal. There has to be give and take. If the heart only ever pumped blood away from it, there'd be no more blood to pump after a while. And if all the heart did was receive blood, the rest of the body would be deprived of you know, oxygen and nutrients. So the heart is encoded with this idea of give and take, of reciprocity, of taking care of yourself first before we can be a caregiver to others. And that's what we see just from looking at the physical organs. Um, if we go a little bit deeper, we can see the roles that the heart has played in cultures throughout history. Um, you know, if we look in ancient Egypt, for example, the heart was so important, it was the only organ that was mummified and put back into the chest cavity during the mummification process. Um, four of the other sets of visceral organs were mummified separately and kept beside the body, and the rest were pretty much all thrown away, including the brain. They thought the brain was so useless that they scraped it out of your skull and tossed it, but the heart was what was involved in your decision-making process. It was with the heart that we, we really live our lives. So, you know, that's going to take us back to trusting your heart. I think for so many of us, our hearts and our minds feel like they're constantly dueling. They're battling. And if we really come back to a, a heart-centered worldview, we're going to see that, you know, they, they're interrelated. They kind of take us to a state of wholeness above and beyond just what the physical organs do. You know, like the physical organ of your brain is like a score of music your heart is the conductor. And then every other cell, tissue, and organ in your body, those are the instrumentalists playing their different instruments, making music. If they didn't have a conductor, they wouldn't be in time together. And if they didn't have a score, there'd be no music to make in the first place. So we need them both to work in tandem. But the role of heart and brain is something that is evolving over time, that we're, we're beginning to understand the, the truer nature of it. Um, so the heart does so much for us on the physical level, on the energetic level, and even not talking woo-woo kind of energy, just the physical electromagnetic spectrum that we can measure. Um, you know, the heart is an important driver of our electromagnetic field, which surrounds and bathes every other part of us. That electromagnetic field is a sensory organ. It is um, a way to um, connect and communicate. Our heart is responsible for so much of what we perceive, even though we don't know it. 
That's great. And I also noticed in your book, you talk about the heart chakra, the spiritual heart. Yeah. I was if you can share that with the audience as well and how that ties into your book. You know, um, the, the modern Western chakra system, as we know it, um, is a little bit different than the original Vedic um, But if we use just the modern seven chakra system, um, the heart is kind of the bridge between the upper and the lower chakras. Um, the lower ones tend to relate more to the material plane, to things like um, survival and reproduction and uh, physical pleasure and your willpower, your ability to shape the world around you. And then above the heart, we have things that involve the, the finer arts of expression, you know, true mental, emotional, and spiritual intimacy of you know, spiritual growth. And we need the heart to be the bridge between the two because you can't live in only one realm or the other. You're not a complete person if you do that. You know, if you, if you want to live only from the crown chakra or only from the third eye chakra, you're, you're missing everything else that you are and vice versa if you never make it past the root chakra. So the heart is this mediator between our, our more earthly selves and our more spiritual selves. Um, the heart is essentially this alchemical crucible in which the power of unconditional love burns away the dross of lead-in consciousness and helps us rebirth our golden self, that spiritually actualized self. Tell me a little about crystal grids, because that's something I've been interested in. I've never utilized it yet, but it's something that does interest me. Um, how exactly do you find crystal grids help with such things as meditation or just being able to employ the use of gemstones in, in terms of improving things within your life? You know, this is a very timely question. I was just writing about crystal grids for my, my current manuscript yesterday. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, grids are an amazing tool. They, they really work on a couple levels. Um, without going into too much of the, the model for how and why crystals work, it, it really boils down to energy. Um, you know, the electromagnetic fields they produce are highly coherent, very ordered, um, and they have a high amplitude. In other words, they're loud. So they, they shape the world around them by bringing us into harmony with, with their frequencies. Um, so if we work with something like a crystal grid where we're, we're combining more than one stone in an intentional way, um, it does not become additive it becomes exponential. This is the law of synergy, wherein the, the sum of something's parts are not as big as the whole itself. So when we combine maybe six or seven or 24 or 907 crystals in a grid, we're creating this unified energy field that is bigger than just the individual energy fields of those stones within it. Um, and that allows them to work on a much bigger level. Sometimes it allows them to work deeper and faster that's, that's not always a good thing, though. You know, faster is faster, louder is louder. If I need to have a conversation with you on the telephone, I don't have to scream at the top of my lungs. So there are going to be some jobs where a tiny stone does the job just perfectly. There will be other times when you might feel like you need a boulder of rose quartz to make it through another corporate meeting. Um, <laughs> and that's okay, too. Um, but the idealistic grid is that first from the law of synergy and then from what we get from the additional layers of symbolism the numerology of them, the sacred geometry of them, the sort of cultural, spiritual symbolism we might work into the shapes, um, we get a whole new layer to their meaning. And that allows us to really be very specific in the goals that we're setting. I think that's great. Before we, I, well, actually, if you could believe it or not, we're in the last 10 minutes of this episode, how fast time goes when you get to talk about such an amazing topic. I want you to share with our audience um, 
your contact information. I just, for example, I know you have your Amazon author page. Um, I also know that when you, when I, when I, you know, go to your website, you have the luminouspearl.com. I'll just see if you can just if you can share your contact information and where they would. Yeah. So um, I travel a lot. I teach a lot of workshops. I try to do as many interviews as possible as well because I love connecting with my audience. Um, so some of the easiest places to find me are on Amazon. Um, so if you go to Amazon.com and look for Nicholas Pearson, you'll go to a page that has all of my publications as well as my, my forthcoming events, and you'll see that I've got things booked out towards the end of the year. Um, as new events are posted, you'll be able to see them there first. And you can also check out my, my publisher's website, which is innertraditions.com. I have a, a page on there as well that has links to other interviews. That'll be the first place my new books appear for pre-order. Um, and there's usually a link to at least the bigger events that I'm doing. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash theluminouspearl. And I, I host a lot of interesting content there for you as well. Um, I do want to say that in addition to the four books already on the market, I have a fifth book coming in the springtime. So it's uh, expected to come out February 19th, and that is going to be called Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine. Excellent. And are you currently doing a Florida tour right now? I'm always doing a Florida tour. <laughs> um, uh, just about every month you can find me somewhere. I'm based in Central Florida in the Orlando area, um, but I travel you know, all up and down the state. Uh, in August, I will be in the Northeast. Um, I've got some stops in Andover, Massachusetts. I'll be visiting the Springfield Gem and Mineral Show. I'll be stopping in Rhinebeck, New York as well. Um, and there may be a couple impromptu stops along the way. So if you're in that area, check out my events, and I'd love to connect with you. That's phenomenal. I wanted to get into your last book. Unfortunately, I wish we had more time, but I just want to get into it briefly and just have you touch upon it. Foundations of Reiki Rio, uh, Manual of Shodan and Acute and probably my pronunciation's off there a little bit, but I wanted to just let the audience know about that book. If you can tell us a little overview about that. So, I mean, this book started because um, I've been a Reiki teacher for um, about a decade now, and none of the manuals that I was using to teach my classes reflected the content. So I wrote my own, um, and I did a whole lot of new research. Um, I looked at the original terms, the original practices. I went as, as often as I could to the original language and form of practice um, in 1920s and 30s Japan to inform my research and to help us understand the hows and whys and deeper meanings of what we do in, in Reiki. So, um, you know, this book started as something that I use as a teaching tool, and now it's something that I actually give out every time I have a student sign up for one of my courses. Wow. Do you actually. Um out of all the books that you've written so far, and I know your new book, did you reveal that title of that book yet, or is that something that you're still working on at this moment, the one that's coming out in February? Yeah, the one that's coming out in February is called Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine. Um, and then I have a, a sixth book that I'm almost done writing, and so there's, there's no title information yet, no topic I can reveal just yet. That's phenomenal. In terms of your book, uh, the one that's coming out in February, what is the su subject matter for that? I know um, that's something that our audience would be very interested in wanting to know about. You know, since, since the beginning of time, we have kind of associated um, divinity as being inherently male and female. And it's only 
in the last couple thousand years that are really veered towards a more patriarchal view of religion, of spirituality, of the divine. So the idea of connecting to the mineral kingdom as a means for connecting to the divine feminine, the, the goddess energy, you know, stones are part and parcel of Mother Earth. You know, the, the very conscious organism that, that gave birth to us also gave birth to the mineral kingdom. And we personify this force as, as the divine feminine. So, um, you know, the book goes into things like mineral science and history and myth and culture and folklore and fairy tale to help us explore these connections. Um, it takes a little bit more of a, a religio-magical kind of view. Rather, rather than being more on the airy-fairy, new-agey side, it goes very old age um, to look at some of these real ancient uses of stones. Um, but it unites that with modern mineral science and with new crystals that are emerging to kind of represent the, the new current of the divine feminine, this, this new energy that is here to carry us into uh, a new era of human consciousness. When you look at what you've accomplished to date, if someone would ask you in one sentence, how would you want your epitaph to be? For example, how would you want to be remembered if you were to have some person a thousand years from now know about you? What would that be and why? I really like rocks, period. <laughs> okay. You know, um, I, don't, I don't think this is something that I could feasibly write myself. Uh, hopefully people are in unnumber me for my warmth, my humor, my intelligence. But ultimately, um, if my contribution is, is what I've written, then, you know, make my books live on for me. And that's good enough. I, I think one of the things that I find fascinating about having you on the show today is that you managed to become a profound author of this topic and, and, you have 350 or so books yourself. Now you've already started adding to that for other people. Um, one of the things I appreciate about you is that you have this passion of creating these, these very interesting topics and helping to, you know, reach a lot of people in a way that very unique. If you were to, I guess, take what you've known so far, and I know you're doing these other projects as well, would say that, is there anything you would recommend that would help society kind of bridge the gap in understanding this topic that maybe isn't exactly accurately portrayed right now from your own personal experiences? What would that be? You know, I think our work with crystals, like all things spiritual, is highly personal. It is a really intimate process. So, you know, the best piece of advice I can give to anyone who wants to learn more about the mineral kingdom is stop looking things up on Google, put the shelf back down on, or put the book back down on the shelf and pick up a rock. Just sit there and get to know it. That might be in quiet contemplation, in a well-lit space, just turning it and looking at it in every which way in the light. It might be holding it and seeing how it feels to you, both physical and spiritual sense. But ultimately, nothing can replace your relationship with your healing tools. So you just got to get off your butt and go out and do it yourself. Out of all the workshops that you've done, what's been your favorite one and why? I really love to share Reiki. Um, you know, crystals are wonderful, but they're an external tool that we rely upon. When we, when we really have that experience of channeling that, that energy in, in the Reiki One class, it is so empowering. And that changed my life in such a profound way. I, I love being able to empower others to do that as well. That's great. 
Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on to our show this evening and sharing your thoughts on this topic. I think it's extremely vital that what you're doing right now in terms of where our society is heading and increasing our knowledge and awareness of crystal healing and gemstones and Reiki, I just think it's, it's invaluable. And I really appreciate you spending your time with us this evening. And, and I just want to thank you for appearing on our show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I would love to have you back on in February when your new book's released. Absolutely. Let's make it happen. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And um, I direct our audience to check out your information and definitely look up your upcoming schedule for your tours and to definitely continue to support you. I know if you have any thing coming up that you'd like us to promote, we'd be happy to do so. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. I want to thank Nicholas again for coming on to our show this evening. And, and as I, you probably know from prior episodes, this is one of those topics I think is uh, very interest, intriguing to me. Um, it's something that I've employed in my readings when I do uh, my intuitive psychic and mediumship readings with people. Uh, I thank you for tuning into this episode and look forward to our upcoming episodes. We will be back on a regular schedule uh, starting you know, from now on. I was traveling last week. That's why I was unavailable to have our schedule last week. But um, we will have a lot of very interesting guests coming up. I direct you to our web, www.dsocial, the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. You can email me directly at info at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com with any questions. And I just want to thank each of you for tuning in and supporting our podcast and our radio show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. 
Electricast. Electricast. Electricast.